Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we talk about the business and legal issues at play behind the glitz and glam of Hollywood and the entertainment industry. I'm your host, Paul Starker, industry veteran and entertainment lawyer and formal Marvel attorney. And I'm your co-host, Mesh Lakani, pop culture enthusiast, absolutely useless when it comes to the legal world. But that's what we're here for. We're here to talk about the behind the scenes stuff in Hollywood. And I can't wait for our second episode. Congrats, Paul. Second episode. We made it this far. Congrats. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to our first. We really appreciate it. Today's show, we're going to talk about a multi-hundred million dollar Ponzi scheme. But first, let's start out with some fun news. For those who watched the Super Bowl, Stafford gets the job done. The Rams were built to win the Super Bowl, and they have sealed the deal. The Dr. Dre and the whole crew halftime show, I thought it was amazing. Paul, did you enjoy watching the Super Bowl? And more importantly... Did you enjoy watching the halftime show? Yes to both. I really enjoyed the Super Bowl and I loved the halftime show. It was such a throwback to see Dr. Dre and Eminem and Snoop plus uh, an upside down 50 Cent was also cool and Mary J. Blige. So it was a great halftime show. And and I'm a lot of group chats and everyone was texting like that was the greatest show they've ever seen. My fiance loved it. Jessica was, was going crazy. So yeah, it was awesome. I think we all know that we're all 90s kids at heart because one, we thought it was the best halftime show ever because I was bumping Chronic 2001 when I was in 10th grade. And then obviously the first two M albums, the 50 Cent album through college, that was the perfect show for us 90s kids. It also shows how old we are now, but who cares? We got the best of it. But here's what I'm actually curious of. Given that this is a business show and we talk about legal stuff, I want to know, like, how does that actually work when it comes to performing in front of millions of people on national TV? Do these people need a license to perform these songs, given how like finicky labels are and rights holders are? Like, how does it work when you're doing this amazing catalog of music with these massive big stars on a massive screen and platform? What do you need to do that? Like, how does it go down? Yes, you're right. You do need a license. Uh, music is copyright. So in the United States, the, the U.S. copyright regime is that this would be considered a public performance. So it's not that you have to do deals with the labels or a bunch of publishers. In this case, all the public performance rights are controlled by four performance rights organizations in the U.S. That's ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and GMR. So the venue, SoFi Stadium, needed a public performance license from whoever controls the songs 
to have the song performed in its venue. And then NBC would need a public performance license to stream it on Peacock and to play it on TV. So it's actually, in the grand scheme of things, kind of a simple use, but uh, an important use nonetheless. And so then how does it work with the artists themselves? Like these are massive artists. Do they get paid? Like if money is being shilled out for these performances, do the actual performers get paid as well? Is it a big payday for them? Because I know they're not necessarily making a ton of money to perform, but they are performing songs that have some type of value to them. So do they still see money in their pockets after like a Super Bowl show? Yeah, I mean, they would see money, but I'm not sure it's a huge payday unless there's sort of upfront comp for the, the performance itself. Because when you have public performance rights under a blanket license, really it's not necessarily a huge amount of money per event because NBC is paying like a monthly fee or a percentage of their revenue to these four PROs and those PROs are dividing the money among artists that they represent. So it's not clear that you're going to be able to see a huge chunk of change come in after the Super Bowl performance, but really what they're getting out of it is the exposure. I mean, all these artists are famous, but it's a huge moment. You have a hundred million people watching and you capture sort of the U S and really the world's collective attention for those 30 minutes. Well, and it seems that Snoop used that platform to his advantage because we saw in headlines this week, that Snoop has acquired the rights to own Death Row Records, the label that was started by Suge Knight that launched the independent careers of Dre, Snoop, Nate Dogg, and of course, Tupac. But what exactly is he buying here? Is, is he buying brand? Is he buying a catalog? Because obviously Death Row went through a lot of legal issues. It filed for bankruptcy. Suge Knight went to jail. The guy's not a nice guy, as we all know. Everyone went off and did their own labels and they figured it out. Obviously this that was the launch of Aftermath and then that's what launched Eminem. But then it was acquired in 2019 by Wide Awake Entertainment for 18 million, which doesn't actually sound like a ton of money. And then it ends up in the hands of Blackstone, one of the largest asset managers in the world who Snoop acquired it from. So what is he actually acquiring here? That's a good question. So I actually haven't seen the deal, but from what I'm reading sort of in the public reports about it is he is getting the brand Death Row Records. He's not getting the catalog. So just to take a step back, and we can certainly dive deeper into label sales and catalog sales uh, in another episode because there's so many happening right now. It's a great time. Many artists think to sell their catalogs and, and labels to monetize their copyrights. But in this case, as you said, it's unclear what Death Row has as of today because of the bankruptcy in 2016. But what we know from the public reports is that Snoop is just getting the brand. He's not getting the catalog. So he's not getting the sound recordings to Doggy Style or The Chronic or The Chronic 2001. What he's getting is no one else can use Death Row Records, copyrights, trademarks going forward without his permission. And when you think about like what labels and what mainly what they do is they provide funds to artists on the front ends for artists to create albums, which they then own and they distribute and then they split the money between the artist and the label. So without the catalog, it's really not clear. You know, it's hard to say what, you know, what the value is, but clearly it had a lot of value for him. And I think he's going to position this as an NFT play and he wants to be, the first label to release songs for the metaverse, uh, whatever that means. But we don't know what he paid, so we can't really say whether it's a good or bad deal. But, you know, as you said, Blackstone, they're, they're pretty sophisticated over there. So I'm sure they didn't do a deal if it didn't work for them. So he's just buying a brand. And what would 
I guess someone want to do with a brand like that. I think in this case, he's using it to launch a new album. And of course, our man Snoop is getting involved in the metaverse. He's launching these albums as NFTs using the Death Row brand behind it, it seems. Yeah. So what he's announced is that he's got a new album called Back on Death Row, and it's going to be released as an NFT. So I think it's 17 songs, and each song is going to be available as an NFT. He's proclaimed that he'll be the first record label releasing songs for the metaverse. It's not entirely clear to me that he couldn't have done this with a different label, like on his own, like started Snoop Records or something like that, because he's not getting back catalog. But, you know, it's a splash. We have no idea what he paid for it. So it could have been, you know, very little. We just that hasn't been disclosed. But anytime you're dealing with Blackstone, you know, they're pretty sophisticated. So I would think that, you know, they would only do a deal if it worked for them. Let's get into our main topic for today, which is a multi-million dollar movie deal scam. In this case, it's a Ponzi scheme. This is a massive fraud issue. This guy, actor, quote unquote actor, Zachary Horowitz, otherwise Zachary Avery, which is his acting name, is getting 20 years for this essentially a Ponzi scheme or it's fraud. I'd love to learn a little bit more because in this case, he raised money from 200 investors, including friends and family, and lost $230 million where he raised 650 overall for his film company, which was being used, the money was being used to buy distribution rights for movies. And then it would get to platforms like Netflix and HBO. Can you explain to us first, what is a deal like that look like? Why do people raise money to do distribution deals? Like how does that even work? Yeah. So doing the distribution deal. So if you think about like the content life cycle, there's usually a several year delay between when you make content, whether it's a TV show or a movie, and when that content actually generates revenue, if ever. So what you have is a timing problem, and there's a, a lack of certainty that any given show is going to make money. So financing or getting together financing for projects is, is one of the biggest sort of hurdles to making projects. And some studios and content producers like Disney and Netflix they finance a certain amount of projects on their own. They have a lot of money. They're regularly creating and developing and producing and releasing content. So there's content in different stages of their life cycle at all times. But other companies that are smaller may make one film and wait three years to make any money from it. And so I think what Zachary did was he told investors that what they could do was either buy finished works that hadn't yet been sold or fund the production of work and use the money that was going to come in from license fees. So for example, let's say you and I make a show and we license it to Netflix and Netflix does, let's say a three-year deal. They would in theory pay us royalties or revenue based on the show, you know, every quarter or every six months after, you know, in that three-year period, they would pay us, but it could take a couple years to make any money from that. And so if we need money to make it, we would say, hey, we'll borrow 10 million because we think Netflix will pay us 15 in license fees. And so we'll pay you a little bit of interest. So essentially what he did is it sounds like he, he got hundreds of people to do these short-term loans and he was offering them, I think, 30% interest. It was 35%. Yeah, well, I think between 25 and 45, and they were guaranteed to receive their 
their principal in a year plus 35% or 25 or 45%, whatever it is. And I don't know that many people that have 3 million. So he, he raised $650 million <laughs> from about 200 investors. That's insane. And as you said, about 230 million of that has not been returned. And he had a $6 million house. He's flying on private jets. He's partying. I'm sure he's getting expensive cars and doing whatever else people do when they squander hundreds of millions of dollars. But it's just crazy, right? Because he must have been a good salesman. And this does bring me to, I think you asked about Ponzi schemes. The idea of a Ponzi scheme is you have no actual business, right? It's just someone who's a con artist, salesman, that pitches someone on a bogus idea and says, hey, if you invest with me, You'll get this crazy beat the market return with no risk and then uses money from new investors to pay the initial investors. But there's no actual business happening. And it sounds like he was able to keep this going for like seven years. Yeah. Okay. There's two things that are crazy to me about this. One, as an investor, the amount of money that he raised is insane. He raised $650 million for a film company, which basically means two things. Like he's raising the money, as you explained, to produce shows and movies. And because he has a distribution deal with like Netflix and HBO, you know, hopefully these movies see the light of day. They get massive distribution. People will get their money back. But when you're telling someone, when you're telling someone, hey, not only am I going to do good movies, Netflix and HBO are going to pick up these movies and I'm giving you a 25% to 45% return and you're going to get your principal back in a year. I'm sorry. I'm immediately like red flag goes off to me because if someone said that to me, I'd be like, that's absolutely bullshit. For one, getting your principal back that quickly over movies, which from what I understand about movies, movies is the same thing as like angel investing. You invest in 10, nine go to zero, one hopefully pays off if you get like a DoorDash or an Uber in your portfolio. In this case, you wanna get like a hit show. And so to be able to provide that type of return over the course of seven years, the guy's a G, but in this case, according to Global Newswire, he was quote unquote, falsely describing Netflix and HBO as strategic partners and fabricating fictitious movie distribution agreements and other documents. And emails. I think he was just like, uh, he was telling people that he knew decision makers at Netflix and HBO. And he had, I think he had some fake contracts between his company. What was it? One in a million? One in MM, right, was his company. <laughs> yeah, one in MM. Yeah, I mean, it's like, in hindsight being 2020, this thing went on for seven years, and you can say the same thing about Bernie Madoff. Who would buy this BS, right? Like, $650 million? It would have to be fabricated because, again, that type of return is insane, especially when it comes to, like, movies because like, people just keep saying like how hard it is to do movies you have to know the right people can you bring on the right actors can you bring on the right directors and like who the fuck is zachary horwitz i mean i checked him out on imdb he's an actor this is zachary avery is his acting name and i looked through these movies i never heard of one movie they're probably independent he films. was in fury he was in fury besides fury which was with brad pitt shia labeouf great movie but he was in as a medic in the movie and wasn't credited. I mean, this guy sounds like a complete loser, but maybe he was doing that to show that like, hey, I know all these folks in Hollywood. I know how to get this done. I mean, the only movie production company I would ever invest in is if Brad Pitt comes and says, hey, we're raising money for this. I think he's A24. Plan B. Plan, sorry, plan B, hit after hit after hit. And even then, that's gotta be hard. I mean, who is this guy? How did he convince? Obviously, the only way he convinced people was he fabricated everything. Yeah. But I'm wondering, 
Weren't people asking like where the movies were after seven years? You'd think, hey man, like what movie did you make that's on HBO or Netflix? Like, do you think he lied about that? Well, so he was returning money to his initial investors using money from new investors. So right. he kind of kept the scheme going from 2014 to 2019. He was succeeding and like lived like a pretty crazy lifestyle. And he didn't start defaulting on his boats until 2019. And he blamed that on Netflix and HBO. And then he fabricated a bunch of emails where I'm sure they said something like, hey, sorry, Zach, we'll pay in six months. Like, we don't have the money right now. And, you know, Netflix and HBO are not credit risks. So people started asking questions and the FBI got involved. Then he pled guilty in October of 2021. And just to get into the legal background. So the crime is wire fraud in the U.S. And that has four elements, right? So the elements of wire fraud are that the defendant sort of voluntarily and intentionally devised a fraudulent scheme to defraud people out of money. The second one is that they did it with an intent, right? So they couldn't have been like genuinely believing that this thing was going to work. And they, they had to know that they were lying to people. And then it was foreseeable that they would basically use the means of interstate and electronic commerce. Uh, and they actually use wire communication. So the last two elements are very easy to prove in the U.S. because money is transferred via bank accounts digitally. So you're always going to use some sort of electronic method of transfer or communication. He was sentenced this week, which is why it was news. He was sentenced, I guess, on uh, Tuesday to 20 years. I think that's the maximum unless you're involving some financial institution and then it's 30 years. Here's how I feel about people who create Ponzi schemes or people who create these types of scans. You're clearly smart. You're very smart and you're clearly willing to do a lot of work to scam people out of money and at the risk of getting convicted of fraud where you get 20 years in prison and then you probably have to figure out how to pay people back at some point. Why not just start a business? You could probably start a really successful business. If this guy's convincing 200 people to give him all that money, he probably should have just done the work instead of taking the risk. And now in this case, you know, being convicted of fraud because 20 years is a freaking long time in prison. This is a white collar crime. Does this guy get off? Like, do you see a, a world where he gets off? Like, okay, 20 years gets brought down to X and then he's on probation and he's back out there doing his thing again. You know, I'm not that close to the facts on this. I don't see him getting off for good behavior. I mean, he owes a lot of people a lot of money, 230 million. I think, uh, and I don't know that there was a plea deal made, but you know, the fact that his wife is getting away kind of scot-free, I think is probably part of this deal. He has two kids, it's very unfortunate. But for her to claim that she had no idea any of this was happening over the course of the past seven or eight years seems a little hard to believe. I mean, you have a $6 million house in Beverlywood, uh, and <laughs> he, he's not necessarily working. But you're right. I mean, he sounds like he was probably really good at sales uh, if he was able to convince people to invest this much money. But the other thing about these Ponzi schemes, and other, there's other variations on this. There's a pyramid scheme where every person has to bring in a certain amount of new people to buy into this business. And that's how they make money. Ponzi scheme literally has no business function. That's kind of the, the identifying characteristic. And, you know, in hindsight is 2020. So like people think that NFTs in a lot of ways can be exploited for the same reason and cryptocurrency in general, because, you know, what happens is people are chasing these incredible returns 
and investing money when they don't really understand what they're investing in because they don't want to be the one that misses out on like the, you know, the billion dollar opportunity. And so I'm sure you see a lot of that in your world, being an investor and, uh, you know, an entrepreneur, but it all looks pretty silly in hindsight. Yeah. I mean, I guess if someone came up to me and like developed the relationship and said that he was all connected in Hollywood and, and I think the HBO and Netflix distribution deal seems like that's the big sell here. If you have a deal with Netflix or HBO, would it be like first look like, Hey, anything that we produce, we send it to Netflix and HBO and they give us some type of priority. Like, does it work like that? Where having a distribution deal with them means this is almost guaranteed to get seen by the world. Like I said, I haven't seen the contracts that he fabricated, but like a reasonable pitch for him to make is Netflix buys the shows in the US, but they're not that focused on international rights or we are financing most of this show through video on demand or ad supported video on demand. And we have this other slice that we're going to license to Netflix, but we don't even really need the money from that. So essentially... Netflix has a ton of content on its platform and it doesn't produce all of it. A lot of it, it licenses in from third parties and independent production companies. The issue is they don't want to pay until months after they've collected the money from their subscribers. So there's that time lag. And in theory, you know, he could know the people at Netflix who are going to pay him or going to do the deal to license the content, but it's just so far out. And the returns, like, I don't know if he created investor presentations or models or whatnot, but the idea that you could get 35% risk-free, as you said, it should <laughs> trigger some sort of like warning. It absolutely should. Right, because Netflix bonds are maybe paying 2 or 3% or right. maybe 4 You know, right. So why would they be paying 35% to this guy? It's insane, which is also like, again, you have to be a good salesperson. But look, if you're investing in this type of stuff, you have to put your investor hat on. Like everything should always be a red flag. Nothing is guaranteed to be getting money that quickly, that fast. I mean, it happens. I have friends who own a bunch of like Wendy's franchises and they return good money, but like you can walk into a Wendy's and you can see that they own like a hundred of these franchises. You know, they're people that are real good operators and they're providing long-term investor value. And in this case, this is what I'm imagining this guy's doing in his presentation. He's like, did you guys see that show Game of Thrones? Yeah, yeah, that's one of ours. That's one of ours. Uh, the new Sex and the City, that's one of ours too. As much as you hated it, that's ours too. And what's the movie with the the Squid Game? Squid Games is ours too. And yeah. everyone's like, man, no, yeah, this we guy's made killing game. it. Yeah. <laughs> I bet this guy's like, oh, our name's not on it because you know, like Netflix didn't want to do that. I mean, I could just imagine that's what he's doing because seven years, you're not showing anything. You have to be lying about something which is funny because Netflix has their show on fraud, their documentary on the Tinder swindler. It's really sad. I mean, he preyed on those women. Yeah, and is that's a Ponzi scheme, right? Because in that case, he's getting them to give him access to their credit cards and he's using that to pay everybody else off and then they're wiring him money. But this guy's not in jail. I think that's just fraud. That's just fraud. I don't think it's a Ponzi scheme because I... I would need to do a little bit more digging into that, but I think that's just run-of-the-mill fraud, which we'll get into later. I don't think it's a Ponzi scheme in the way like Bernie Madoff had a Ponzi scheme or this guy had a Ponzi scheme. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but did he claim to have some business where he was just like, invest in my business and you'll get 20% in a year? He was claiming to be the heir of this big diamond 
uh, family where he was, you know, they were putting these deals together and the deals weren't going through. And so he needed these girls to like provide him with some cash flow because he needed the cash flow. And then he would use their credit cards and then they would wire him money and they were taking out loans on their name. So nothing was actually in his name. And now this guy is like just hanging out. And, you know, we should follow up and do a deep dive on the Tinder swindler and like, is this guy gonna get convicted at some point? But it seems that like people get away with fraud all the time. Moving on like to another situation that happened this week, there was a fraud case with the amazing race co-creator that super popular reality TV show where people run around the world doing all sorts of puzzles and shit. I've seen like one or two seasons back in the day. It is pretty insane, but I guess the co-creator here is being sued by another executive or ex-CBS or Warner Brothers executive. CBS, yeah. CBS who's alleging that this person, Betram Van Munster, screwed her out of a production company and started something without her. Can you explain what's happening there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this looks like a co-producer or producer partnership gone awry. So as you said, Lee Collier had this company, New Media Collective, which she formed with Bertram Van Munster, as, as you pronounced that better than I did. <laughs> and she alleges that she had this groundbreaking, visionary, new strategy to make content with local production companies. And who knows how visionary or, or innovative it was. But you know, at the end of the day, she had an agreement with this guy and he brought in some other partners for this company, New Media Collective. And then it sounds like in 2017, he and the other partners told her that they were, wanted to fold the company. They didn't want to work together anymore. They didn't have any enticing projects. And she she said, okay, she she went with it. The company was dissolved. She put in a lot of effort in the couple of years leading up to that, but I guess it didn't. she didn't see any results. And then uh, in 2021, one of the people friended her in Clubhouse and she Googled him and saw that he had a company, a production company that was making like tons of deals. <laughs> and she got, she flipped because she said, hey, this is all my idea. All I thought of all this stuff. Oh, man. You guys, all you did was kick me out of the company and you have this really successful company that I was supposed to own a chunk of. And so she's suing them. She's suing them for fraud, breach of contract, for stealing her ideas. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it plays out. But yeah, I mean, in this case, it's just fraud and who knows you know, what the deal is. It's a he said, she said, who knows what they had signed or whether they got anything papered, but it just seems like a messy situation. And uh, if you're this guy, Bertrand Van Munster, and, and people are buying your content, you know, one of the things you have to wonder is, are they still going to want to do business with you with this huge risk out there? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, again, it goes back to, you know, this, this woman, clearly they just, you know, they had like $62 million in production deals. They wanted to cut her out of the company. Dude, just have a fucking honest conversation with someone. Say why you want them or don't want In them. addition to that, I think that's exactly right. But I would also say you got to document it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you have the conversation, but then you got to paper it, whether it's a termination or a release, something that says, hey, so-and-so, you're getting X or you're not getting anything. Because when you leave it vague and just hope they don't find out, they always find out. And it always becomes a mess. Yeah, th it's just unfortunate in this case, like a lot of fraud happening. Dudes are animals, man. And then seems here in the in a few cases we've talked about, like dudes screwing over women, dudes screwing over other folks, like the effort that you make in screwing people over, the risk you take is that your reputation is completely burnt and no one's gonna wanna work with you in the industry. And hopefully she benefits from here because either she wins. I mean, in these cases, is it hard to win a case like this? Yeah, I mean, all cases are hard to win. You have to prove a lot of things. In this case, you know, she's asking for a jury trial, so she's going to have to prove, 
you know, if they had a contract uh, where they agreed to share the company and they never signed anything dissolving the company or they never got into, you know, what her share was, if the company ever went forward. I mean, what she's going to have to prove, though, is that, like, they stole her ideas or they stole her copyright or they're making content that she owned, right? Because if you have a company, you and I could have a company and it doesn't succeed. And that doesn't prevent you from having a company with someone else that does succeed, right? Like that's business. So it's not enough to say you and I had a company that you dissolved. She's got to prove beyond that, that there was an intent to lie to her, defraud her so that basically everyone else agreed, hey, let's lie to her, tell her we're, we're going to shutter the company. And then as soon as she's out, Let's start it back up again, which is a tougher thing to prove. But, you know, I don't know the facts. We just read the complaint, which was, you know, filed in Los Angeles County in public. But we'll see how it plays out. But to your point about the greed and the fraud, I have a feeling we're going to be doing a few more episodes about this topic, especially as celebrities are getting sued for endorsing NFTs and altcoins and other things that you really can't value you know, in a fundamental basis, but you know, people don't want to miss out on the next best thing. So they invest in them. Yeah. Everyone's trying to get rich overnight. I was just having a conversation with a friend the other day who uh, was talking to some dude who is like all about NFTs. And I don't know if he was trying to impress her or not. And then, you know, now she wants all in on it. And I was like, listen, let's just be honest. Like the chances of getting rich overnight are really, really slim. And there's a lot of people out there who are trying to get rich overnight. Wait, what? <laughs> Listen, Paul, I know I promised you some things with this podcast that we were going to get to like, you know, X amount of millions. <laughs> well, Mesh, we can definitely do more episodes on fraud and, and all the permutations and creative ways that people find to screw each other over. But that's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Better Call Paul. Awesome, man. Well, look, another great episode, episode two of Better Call Paul. Make sure you're subscribed on all your favorite podcast apps, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you choose to listen. Subscribe to Better Call Paul. Leave us a review. Also, a special thanks to Michael Castaneda for editing and producing this episode. Tune in next week. We're going to have some more juicy stuff for you. Until next time. <laughs>